Many parts of neuroscience research have a race problem. Black people are often excluded from studies due to the texture of their hair, receive erroneous and inaccurate readings due to the melanin content of their skin, and are severely underrepresented in neuroimaging datasets. Now, neurotechnology is undergoing a moment of tremendous change, as Elon Musk's Neuralink has obtained independent review board approval to conduct its first human trials for the R1 robot and N1 brain implant. That makes it an especially good time to have a frank conversation about who gets to lead innovation in neuroscience, especially within neuroengineering. Getting this wrong has vast consequences. That was Deshane Murray, a Wu Tsai Institute postdoctoral fellow at Yale University. He's also the co-founder of Black in Neuro, where he serves as development director. He was reading from his recent first opinion essay on neuroscience legacy of racism and what it means for neurotechnology. I'll bring you our conversation about neuroracism, past and future, after a quick break. Social drivers of health are non-medical factors like financial health, nutrition, housing, and transportation that impact individuals' health outcomes. Unmet social needs can exacerbate health conditions, prevent timely access to needed care, and increase reliance on more costly services. To learn how United Healthcare's holistic medical and social support model is identifying and addressing the needs of millions of Medicare Advantage members each year, visit unitedhealthgroup.com research. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stat's platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Welcome to Shane. Thank you for being here. And thank you for having me. So I'd like to start a bit with your background before we dive into the topic of your recent First Opinion essay. So tell us a bit about the kind of research you do in neurotech. I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at Yale. Um, I'm working on a, a device, um, which is more like an integration project. So we're trying to monitor the injured brain uh, in cases of traumatic brain injury and stroke. Um, currently, there are about four to five different devices um, that essentially look at various things like pressure, temperature, oxygen, um, EEG, um, so electrical signals, and also chemical signals to the brain, um, and also some like cerebral blood flow. But essentially, the project is about combining all of these into one um, one distinct probe, um, essentially, so we can reduce potential of infection, make it a bit easier for clinicians to input this um, device into the brain, and also just ease. <laughs> it just just generally ease and ease and cost. Um, so that's currently where I'm at and I have a background in doing so. I originally um, had an undergraduate in chemistry and then moved over into sensors work. And that's where I kind of got into neuroscience and neurotechnology. As you mentioned at the start of the episode, progress is happening in brain implants and neurotechnology, uh, for better or for worse. Yeah. Um, while I know it's always really, really tricky to get people to make a prediction, I mean, how far out do you think we are before brain implants are used fairly widely among people um, with some sort of brain injury? I think it's fair to say that some of this has already happened. I mean, 
to say widely, and that would be quite hard to, to mm-hmm. put an exact number. But even, I guess, as I mentioned briefly in the article, that we are starting to see these things being potentially used for locked-in syndrome and, and people who potentially got really um, bad paraplegia. Um, so we are all kind of already there. It's just that, I guess, mainstream adoption or or being able to get it out en masse, which I think would still probably take another 15 to 20 years, in my opinion. But yeah, don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you said 15 to 20, because when I was a technology editor in my last job, the joke was that everything was always five to 10 years away. Yeah. So this seems much more realistic to me. <laughs> um, so now, at what stage of your training in education in neuroscience did you start to sort of learn about the history of racism in the field? You know, when did it you start to realize that there was this intersection between race and and neuroscience? I kind of came into neuroscience quite late in my training. So, as I said, I was a, a chemist originally, um, also did a master's in chemistry, and then kind of moved across to neuroscience. So it was really as... I was learning more about the field, um, just kind of like my second master's and, and as I was starting my PhD, that I was like, oh, okay. I was starting to interrogate more widely. But I would say 2020, in the time during the pandemic, when a lot of people ended up getting quite closed off um, and unable to really focus on their own research or even attend labs because some of our labs were completely shut down, that was where... I've got the chance of the ability to actually read more widely and kind of just look into um, a lot of the legacy of, of neuroscience, the history, um, history of many things regarding race in general. And I think at the same time, you were having not just in the US, but also in the UK, where I'm originally from, um, disproportionate impact of, of COVID on ethnic minorities and Black people specifically. And I think that's where I kind of started to read a, a little more widely around that and just see this phenomenon that has always been there, um, but is now more center stage and getting the attention that it should have got um, when we started to see these things happen in the first place. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about some of those things that have been with neuroscience since the dawn of the field. There's a lot to be said about, and I should preface it with the fact that neuroscience is quite a new science. Um, so... I guess neuroscience is a study in a field. You're really looking at the last hundred years, really. Um, but before then, if you're looking at it, just the intersections with psychology, but then um, I guess like precursors to neuroscience. So um, things like phrenology, um, which is essentially now a pseudoscience and has been discredited, um, and just very other, various other things that kind of link to um, essentially how we view humans and how we view species. And um, I would say that that's where I really got a handle or understanding of just how, I guess, insidious the racism can be and its origins and how it's kind of seeped through um, to to the modern day. I think something that I would say that even persists with us now, we're talking about, okay, physical characteristics that might be different um, with regards to people's brains. Um, and that's essentially what phrenology was about and how that has persisted even to things like IQ science and and saying that someone may have or or based on what race they are that they should have different IQs etc um and how that is say genetically encoded which is is not true um these sorts of things have have very much 
well, they had their origin in what was science at the time, um, but has now been discredited as science. So it's essentially the original before neuroscience existed, but it has still managed to persist and seep through at, at various times. And phrenology, we should say, was this nineteenth um, century, early twentieth century belief that you could use calipers to measure someone's skull and get a sense of of who, how intelligent they were, and other characteristics, which is, of course, um, a lot of nonsense, as I believe is the scientific term for <laughs> for that now. Yeah. Um, so right, so all of these sorts of precursors have seeped into neuroscience today. Um, in ways that I think a lot of people, especially people who are white, um, maybe just haven't thought of. So one thing you mentioned is that black people are often excluded from studies in neuroscience because of the texture of their hair. Can mm -hmm. you explain that a little bit more? Sure. It's kind of kind of going back to the importance of, okay, where do we start with the technological design? Because we're not saying that, or I'm not saying that, whatever electrode that you've made or created is is racist but it's when you have someone who creates something creates a technology but doesn't think about the wide range of users that are potentially going to use it then that's where the problem comes in so essentially um you can have high impedances um for when electrodes are put onto someone's scalp and this is just purely due to the texture of someone's hair but the electrodes that currently are out there in most eeg systems um do not work so well with with black hair so there's clearly been an oversight there and that's something that's kind of persisted and gone through to the point that it's easier for a researcher um to say okay this is not working as well i'm not getting very good signals sorry can you come back another time or unfortunately we can't have you continue in the study and as a result of that you get someone excluded so yeah it's it's really that that has kind of persisted through and where we need technological changes and some people have already gone about this and and um made such changes um on is one of them uh where they've actually redesigned electrodes or even i think liesel richardson has come out with um guidelines on how to actually part black hair to make it such that it would work a bit better um with electrodes but it's the fact that at the first principle is in when you've designed the technology it hasn't been designed with everybody in mind, and then it has later consequences. And we've been using EEG for 90 plus years now. Oh, that's, of course, very alarming. In are, where I don't know where your implant is, but um, to, to focus on, on that for a second, in your own work, are you able to use, I mean, do you have to use EEGs? Um, are you able to use accessible ones? Yes, so... Um, for our implant, it will be in the cortex. Um, so brain is brain. So that's, oh, the, yeah, of course. that's, the, that's <laughs> the good thing um, in that sense. But I guess even like, further in the other school, I actually talk about even disparities within stroke and stroke will be one of the um, things that this advice will be used for. And there's a huge disparity to do with black Americans compared to white Americans and the incidence of stroke. Um, and that's also the same in the UK. So it's, again, this this wider conversation, and if you're not having people like myself in the room, or just having diverse teams um, from all over that can give you different opinions, you then end up producing technology that doesn't work for everybody. If neuroscience kind of continues on the trajectory that it currently is, in which black people are often excluded from from studies, are not 
uh, you know, represented and, you know, technology is not necessarily made with them in mind. Um, what does the future of neurotechnology look like then? Very good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> A small one, sorry. <laughs> uh, I think it's just an inequitable one. I think that's the, the main thing to, I guess, bang home is that we already live in a, a quite, I would say, a quite unequal society, but those inequalities persist. Um, and, well, I mean, just, just generally with, I guess, technological disparities, but wider disparities, they have real like, um, long-term consequences, even though, as I say also in the article, that race is a social construct, the fact of the matter is it still affects I said it has real world consequences. So that's people dying earlier, um, people getting diagnosed with diseases later, um, just a range of real problems, but even just general day-to-day -day things um, and even not outside of neuroscience. Even if you think of light-based technologies and say a simple inconvenience of a hairdryer. Um, and I've had this, I think I even had this problem last week as in just putting my hand under a handdryer, just trying to use or operate a simple device though what i would say is a simple device and it not responding to me um so it's just the general inaccessibility that from day to day but then it can really compound and have wider consequences and i think it's dealing with that and i guess for some people that is the status quo so it will continue but for many of us it's this can't continue as it is um so it's a, a tension i guess so now when you talk to white neuroscientists about this you know do they sort of understand what you're saying i mean is there openness um to kind of changing the way they approach the field um i would say the response is mixed <laughs> it will always be the case uh that you get some people who will, will get it and understand it straight away some people that will um be open to the conversation um but Often, I think within academia, we think, oh, no, not us. Oh, our, our science is um, <laughs> is objective, um, et cetera, and it's, it's not true. As in, we all have a lens that we kind of bring into whether it's work or anything that we're investigating. We have, based on our set of experiences, that we then, you know, choose to, I guess, critically, critically analyze the world. So it can be quite mixed, the response that you get. Um, I think even just our, our presence in the space, even though it has been well received and with the wider work we're doing with Black and Neuro, we've already made quite a bit of change on that and got some of these conversations going. But it's hard to, I guess, see how that filters directly through on the local level when these sorts of things are happening in a, a person's research lab, for example, um, are happening to patients who may be, you know, in, in certain clinics and, and getting these um, sort of diagnosis or or not getting the proper care that they deserve as well. So it's it's a mixed response. Yeah. And so as you note in your article, Black people are underrepresented not only in the neuroimaging databases and clinical trials that we spoke about, yeah. um, but also in the ranks of researchers. So a 2017 report found that Black people account for 4% of those who receive neuroscience PhDs, 3% of postdoctoral appointees, and 1% of faculty um, and I assume these numbers are in the U.S., but correct me yes, if I'm wrong there. That's correct. So that was 2017. Um, do you think those n numbers are likely to have changed much in the the past six years? Um, 
I'm hopeful, but no, if I'm honest, <laughs> I, I would like to see the latest stats just to see. But I found particularly in, in academia that change on this rate can be quite glacial, that it, it really takes a while for, I guess, even just the work that we see happening to actually be reflected in academia, which is why a lot of organizing that we have done has actually been quite grassroots um, rather than taking place directly at a said institution. Um, so I am hopeful for the change, but I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's been reflected as of yet. And well, even my own institution at the ground, I'm not, I'm not seeing that, especially amongst postdocs. Well, tell me a little bit about that grassroots work. What sort of things are you doing to try to, you know, expand the diversity of people in neuroscience? It's mainly around community building. Um, it's quite hard to explain just all what that entails, um, but just the it's the importance of showing people that they are not alone in a space. Uh, I think people don't realize this a lot that, okay, you might see a percentage and of say, okay, this institution has this amount of black students, et cetera. But some of our institutions are quite large. And if you go then into research when you're going up to the upper levels where these percentages get even smaller, you end up as well as an individual, as a black person, quite siloed. So you can be in in one research group and you're the only person in your research group. You might go to a few other departments or even within your own department and see that you're the only one or one of two or three in your department. And then on a wider institutional level, the, even at the postdoc level, I would say there's probably, myself at Yale, there's probably about, say, 40 Black postdocs max. So you do feel that and that does bother you because you're like, okay, am I supposed to be here? Um, was it a mistake? I mean, you begin to question yourself and that will invariably affect your your work and your research. So a lot of our community building is based on kind of strengthening and kind of reminding each other that we are here, even though we may be in separate spaces and spheres. Um, and that support is very much peer support so that hopefully we then will move up together and create a pipeline. Yeah, have you spoken with many other Black people who started in neuroscience and, and left for one reason or another and, and, you know, attribute it at least in part to to their race? Yeah, I, I would definitely say so. Um, and I would also have to say that this is not unique to neuroscience. I think in the academy in general, there are a few wider problems. Toxicity. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's just not just on the basis of race. Um, gender is a real issue. Um, disability is a real issue and just inaccessibility there. I mean, there's a lot of problems within academia where change has been very slow. It's a it's a people thing. It's a lack of certain protections as well, as in, especially at the, the postdoc and trainee level, we're not treated as proper staff, yet we're not students. So we're kind of this awkward middle. So there's a boiling pot of kind of issues or systemic <laughs> issues. Absolutely. Is there anything, though, that feels unique to neuroscience in this challenge? I would probably say with respect to probably the, I guess the diseases and mm. just the disparity that you see within um, diseases. I think that could be quite frustrating. For me, it doesn't personally affect my research because as I said, brain is brain and where we're putting in. But I I think I've felt that even myself, I've gone towards or gone to the, um, this was in the UK, gone towards, um, sorry, attended like the neuroscience intensive care unit and just seeing a room 
and essentially in the room it was just a, a bunch of black patients and i know i think that was the first time for me it's just experiencing me like oh okay this is where the disproportionate effect is because i'm here in this intensive care unit and all i'm seeing is is black patients who are um suffering from stroke etc i think that personal toll um and it's even i guess feeling yourself in the research sometimes um it can probably be a driver but it could also be something that could be quite discouraging um which is why i guess people from a neuroscience point of view might be like okay yeah i'm not in, enjoying this or i may struggle to continue on in this because i'm feeling myself within the research and that would probably be with regards to alzheimer's disproportionately affects black people um glioblastoma again which i talked about um there's issues with epilepsy too it's, it's seen way across the board but even um neuroscience does encompass things like responses to pain um so um even like maternal mortality um which is disproportionate again with black women compared to to white women in the us and in the uk um so i think yeah i think it's just that personal toll um and that can actually quite grind you down in your research because you know that there's a problem and you're having to um, really push to make a change. Um, and that can be quite um, heavy, to, let's just say. Yeah, yeah, and that's such a, a difficult tension because, as you say, on the one hand, that can motivate you mm-hmm. to want to make a difference. But it, if it's taking such a heavy psychological toll at the same time, um, you know, I, I can understand people wanting to go into the field to help and then perhaps burning out faster, absent all the other challenges we've talked about just because of of that burden. I mean, is there, you know, anything that can be done to sort of help support people mentally who are doing this kind of work that, that touches them personally in the same way? Yes, definitely. I think that's, again, an oversight that, well, an oversight by many of the institutions where these people attend. Um, I think for myself personally, I've I've made sure to go down that route or encourage people to go down that route just because it can be a lot. Um, I mean, just even from a community building perspective, it's it's quite taxing because you're doing extra work that's outside of the academy as well. Um, but then within your own research, when you're feeling these things, I think it it is important to be able to speak to people and and have that. I would say that that's something though that is still missing is. Yeah, personally, how we deal with researchers and how we handle their mental health. And I guess that goes around into the wider conversations around <laughs> just the treatment of students and researchers in, in general within academia. Yeah, I mean, how are institutions talking about this and, and the intersection between better, more diverse research and unionization and all these things? I mean, are, are they sort of acknowledging how these things all interplay or or not? I would say there's a resistance to it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can see why there may be, because um, usually when these sorts of things happen, especially around unionization, people will automatically think, okay, better pay, so then it's going to affect overheads, especially for those higher up who have to balance books as, as they're you know, leading research groups, et cetera. Um, so there is business cell I've seen in my own institution that it may be a bit slow um, for this change to come about. Um, but I think it's one of those things where it's not a conversation that's going to go away. And it's a 
it's an issue in the US, it's an issue in the UK, it's an issue in I think academia in general that you're going to have talent that leaves um, if you don't support them holistically. And at the moment, I think that is a real issue, as in we're, we can be great at focusing on the science sometimes, but to the detriment of the people that do the science. Um, and then forgetting that if you treat the scientists better, you probably will get better science. Um, so it's a, I guess, a, <laughs> a loop. <laughs> That's definitely a self-perpetuating cycle there. Yeah. Um, in a good way, it could be at least. Yeah. Um, you know, you've mentioned, of course, you're originally from the UK. Now you're working in the US. Um, mm -hmm. Have you noticed any differences between the two in how discussion about race plays out? Yeah, I, I definitely have. Um, during my time, during my PhD in the UK, so I was at Imperial, um, I spent a lot of time community building in addition to doing my PhD. And I found that race conversations in the UK are a lot further behind. Um, part of that is due to the fact that our Black population is much smaller. Um, and also the way in which slavery happened in the in the UK, as in it was perpetuated in the islands, as in I'm originally from Jamaica. Um, sorry, my grandparents are originally from Jamaica, so I'm of Jamaican heritage. Um, and it was essentially done on the islands, then the British or whoever colonial power would have removed from the island and then left the island, well, either in colonialism and then to a form of independence later on. So it's almost like there's a disconnect. Um, and I think that same thing, you know, people try to in the US, that same thing cannot be done in the US because essentially slavery was perpetuated on US soil and has continued through through Jim Crow, et cetera. So I would say race conversations are a lot further along um, in the US, but it doesn't mean that there isn't so much resistance to even with change we've seen even most recently with affirmative action, et cetera. There's, there's a lot. Um, that is more out in the open, I would say, than in the UK. Absolutely. So, you know, looking ahead, you know, you mentioned that you thought maybe your brain implant might be 15 to 20 years out uh, for for wide use um, or brain plants more generally. Um, what changes would you like to see to the field in the next 15 to 20 years? I would say for brain implants more generally, 15 to 20, I think for the implant we're working on, yeah. I think it, I would say it's closer. Um, oh, good. Sorry. I, I would say that's more because that's more integration of what exists rather than kind of pushing the boundaries, which is, again, I guess what um, Neuralink, et cetera, people are trying to do. I I think if I'm looking at the field and trying to predict things just generally, I think there's so much that we can achieve um, from having these sorts of implants and having, I guess, augmentation with, with the human body. But it's the purpose that we're doing it for. Um, and I think, well, I don't have to tell you, just you look at through human history, just how we get carried away with certain inventions and then use them for bad rather than good. Um, I think that's where our focus should be is, is really putting the ethics into, okay, we can do something, but should we do something rather than just going forward or guns blazing? As in the example or the analogy I always give is social media, which is amazing, but it's a double-edged sword. And we think of just even the effects on my generation and younger than me for their mental health and just how communication has changed in general as well. I don't think we've really come to terms with the impact of of an invention like that. Um, and I think neuro implants 
really do have such great potential to potentially give people um, back function, to give people function that they didn't have before. But then it's that next step is what do we do after that, um, that I struggle with. <laughs> and I'm a bit, not I don't want to say fearful about, but careful about. And I think that we should tread with with caution because we do want, oh, we don't have a, an equitable world at the moment, but I think we will further perpetuate inequality um, if we kind of let kind of <laughs> our, I guess our minds run amok in some senses, I would say <laughs> just, just based on history. Yeah. Or let someone else's mind run amok in your mind, perhaps, yeah. as the case may be. <laughs> I, I think a lot about how in about maybe 2010, um, a web developer told me that he was increasingly concerned about how with the integration of like buttons on websites and, and things like that, he didn't like how Facebook was sort of spreading its tentacles throughout the infrastructure of the Internet. And mm -hmm. the way he phrased it, you know, just really st stuck with me. It was really sort of visceral. And yeah. so now when I think about, you know, large Silicon Valley companies having brain implants, I think about the same thing, you know, yeah. having the tentacles in the web infrastructure is one thing, but the tentacles in your brain is something completely different. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, constantly is connected. There, yeah. I mean, can you imagine yourself ever being interested in, you know, an some sort of brain implant for for augmentation purposes? Personally, no, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's well, there's beauty in in our humanity and and in what we have. I I don't see in my eyes how that would improve our societies um beyond I guess, well, for me, leveling the playing field for those who don't get to experience um, just, I guess, the wonders of our world in various ways is there's um, not rumors, but there's current research going into restoring sight for people. There's there's a range of things that you could do with neural implants and um, with bioelectronics more more widely as well. Um, and I don't think that next step, which can then essentially be sold to the highest bidder for whatever they want to do, is is the right path forward. So I'm I'm not a fan of of augmentation. A fan of what um communication or things that might make things easier for people, but I think when we go, that next step is where we we kind of mess things up. Yeah. How do you and your colleagues who are working sort of really in a focused way on implants to help people with disabilities and, you know, who are who are not able to live lives as as fully as they might want to and connect with people. How do you think about the way your work could sort of inadvertently help promote the work of people who are more interested in enhancement? It's a very good question. Um, I think anything that we do, essentially, and this kind of how academia works in general, is that you kind of use it as a stepping stone or a building block. So even a lot of the work that Neuralink is doing currently has at least 60 to 70 years worth of of literature history think about like the utah rays or various implants that have been um have been used that's the research that is built upon um and where they take that now is is up to them um but they wouldn't have that without the background so it is something that i do think about a lot because as we advance things forward someone can essentially read that take that and then use it for a different purpose. But I think that's also the importance of having these sorts of conversations more often. Um, and also just really reckoning with 
why we're doing something rather than can we do something? I guess, yeah, <laughs> it's just asking that a different question. All right, no, speaking of questions, my last question for you is, um, do you enjoy any science fiction about neuroscience and neurotechnology? Is there anything I, you would recommend to listeners? Ooh, so I do generally, but I found that as I'm getting older, a lot of the science fiction is becoming closer to science fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's getting a bit scary in that sense. But um, I think it would be more so in films, but all of them, unfortunately, are dystopian. So maybe that bears <laughs> um, all kind of shows where we're going in that respect. But I would feel, think like... Um, films such as Elysium, films such as District 9, etc., kind of really show the idea where, okay, you've got some form of augmentation, you've got something that interfaces with the brain, it's very cool, um, but it's used for the wrong purposes, which is <laughs> invariably to to create haves and have-nots, etc. So I, I enjoy it from that point of view, as in kind of that conversation that it elicits, but I think as I'm getting older and then getting more into this research, I'm realizing just how much closer we get to that, um, which is a bit worrying. Well, if I can recommend something, if you're looking for some reading over the holidays and your your ample spare time, um, there's a, a novel called Lock-In by John Scalzi mm -hmm. um, about a world in which um, after a, a pandemic, yeah. a lot of people begun, begin using... Um, sort of mechanical avatars to interact with the world. And it gets into a lot of these really fascinating issues that you've touched on today about um, about access and equity mm -hmm. and who clinical research is made available to. So if you read it, let me know. Sounds good to And me. listeners, if you read, read it, let me know what you thought. Well, Deshane Murray, thank you so much for joining me today. This is really fun. Well, fun's a weird word to use. It was really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's been great talking with you. And thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. This is actually our last episode of the season, but the First Opinion Podcast will be back in the spring, so please keep subscribing. And of course, there are lots of other ways to stay in touch with First Opinion in the meantime. If you're a subscriber, join us on Stat Plus Connect, where you can find discussion, job listings, and much more. Sign up for the First Opinion newsletter. The link is in the show notes. And of course, you can email me at first.opinionatstatnews.com. And this is the last time you have to hear me ask this in 2023. If you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Have a very happy new year. And until next time, I'm Tori Bosch. And please don't keep your opinions to yourself. <laughs>